0: stopping you You, you. from becoming a Catholic. Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN.
1: I don't understand why I have to earn salvation.
0: 1-833-288-3986. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? You, you, you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network.
2: Everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. It's the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. Maybe you are a non-Catholic and uh, you're hearing all about Advent, and you're saying, "Well, what is Advent anyway?" and and why is that a big deal for Catholics? Well, let's let's talk about that. Here's our phone number: eight three three. 288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us uh, outside of North America, please dial 1 and then 205-271-2985. And of course, you can always uh, send us an email. The address for that: ctc at EWTN.com, ctc at ewtn. Dot com. Charles Beery is our producer. Matt Kabinsky is our phone screener. Jeff Burson handles social media for us. If you want to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, uh, we are streaming there right now. Put your question in the comments box. Jeff will see that. He will uh, shoot it to us here in the studio. Hopefully, we can answer your question uh, on the radio today. I'm Tom Price along with Dr.
3: David Anders. Tom, how are you today?
2: Very well. How are you, my friend?
3: You know, I'm doing uh, tolerable, tolerable. How about you? We-
2: you you actually had a very interesting morning, didn't you? Uh, kind of a tough one
3: with one, with one of your dogs. Yeah, so I was I was on the way to the network to record a a mail program as yes, you well know. Yes. And I had to call our producer Charles and tell him I was going to have to miss because my dog consumed or I thought that he had consumed toxic material right before I was going to come here. So we ran off to the vet uh, vet's office and we induced vomiting. And um and the one conclusion that came out of that is the vet came out and said, well, we have learned that Harry does not chew his food, <laughs> <laughs> but they did in fact did not in fact find the toxic substance in question. Um, Harry's
2: a little more of an in- inhaler, is that it? He
3: he, he is an inhaler okay. exactly.
2: Well, the good news is Harry is okay, and you're here.
3: Harry is okay, except he feels kind of queasy now because uh, uh, he had his <laughs> dog vomit medicine. <laughs>
2: And other happy things to talk about during the lunch hour. Well, thank you for elaborating on that. Appreciate that. A couple of interesting questions here to lead us off. This one is from Vicky, who says, I have a question about receiving Catholic communion. I was baptized by the Lubbock Chinese Mission at Lubbock, Texas in 1989. I had my first communion in 1989. I have also completed English classes to become a member of the Chinese Bible Church of Maryland in Rockville, Maryland. Can I receive Holy Communion in the Catholic Church, or do I need to go through some classes to receive Holy Communion? Please advise. Thank you, Vicki.
3: Um, yeah, thank you very much. I appreciate the question. So I, I don't know anything about the Lubbock Chinese mission, but I presume this is not a Catholic ministry. And so it sounds like you're not, you weren't catechized and brought up and initiated into the Catholic Church. And so the Catholic position is that uh, while we invite everyone to share with us in our faith in Christ and the many things that we can celebrate in common, unless a person is fully incorporated into, Catholic, into the Catholic Church, they should not receive communion in a Catholic Church. And, and there are a number of reasons for that. Um, so the, the, for a Catholic, the sacrament of communion is, among other things, an act whereby we signal our agreement, our adherence to the Catholic faith, and our belonging to the Catholic community. And so it's a, it's a performative way of expressing, I believe that this is the church Christ founded, and I believe everything that, that she teaches. Mm-hmm. So if you go to communion in a Catholic Church, and you don't actually believe the Catholic faith, or you're not a member of the Catholic Church, you're you're sort of testifying against yourself, you see? Um, and so that, that really doesn't do you any, any favors, it doesn't mm-hmm. do us any favors, it's just yeah. not helpful, right? Mm-hmm. Also, the, the Catholic Church has an understanding of communion that's different from... Protestant churches. One of them is, really, the the key one, is for us the communion is the culmination of an act of sacrifice, that what we call the mass, which is the consecration of bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ, uh, constitutes a genuine sacrifice that we offer to God. Most Protestant churches deny that. They deny that the mass is a sacrifice. And as in the Old Testament sacrifices that required a kind of ritual purity on the part of the priest to make the offering in a worthy manner... There's also a purity required for the Catholic to make this sacrifice or to participate in this sacrifice, but it's an interior purity, a purity of the heart. And the Church has an obligation to adjudicate, to determine whether the participants in the liturgy are, in fact, fit to participate in the sacrifice. Mm. And there's a forum for making that determination, and it's called the Sacrament of Reconciliation or the Sacrament of Penance. And so for Catholic to worthily receive communion, it is necessary for him or her to go to confession and receive the sacrament of absolution prior to that communion to ensure that they participate in a worthy manner. Protestants don't do that. They don't have that conception, and they don't actually put themselves under the Church's judgment. So some people, when they hear that Catholics don't want to admit non-Catholics to communion, they, they get offended, and they say, well, you're judging us. It's actually the exact opposite. Mm. It is because the Church cannot pass judgment on non-Catholics that she cannot form the judgment, it's safe for you to go to communion. Now, none of this makes sense to a Protestant, because in, in Protestant land, oftentimes communion means something vastly different. For many Protestants, it means this is a symbol whereby I affirm or am reminded of or call to mind my intimacy with Jesus, and... Anybody that has intimacy with Jesus could perform that rite, and it would have the same meaning. And so if you tell me I can't go to communion, it means you think I don't have a relationship with Christ. That's just not what Catholics mean. So we have—since we understand the sacraments so differently, it's wrong to judge Catholic intentions by Protestant doctrines. And and again, I think it's unfair of Protestants to want to come to communion in the Catholic Church and try to impose a Protestant understanding of the Church or of the sacrament or of relationship with Christ— on what Catholics mean by the rite of Holy Communion. So, again, we invite you to come to Mass. We're not saying that you don't have a relationship with Jesus. God bless you in your relationship with Jesus. We hope you get to heaven through your relationship with Jesus. But Communion means something that's so particular and unique within the Catholic context that you really have to believe the Catholic faith and be a member of the Catholic Church to receive it worthily.
2: Very good. And uh, Vicki, thank you so much uh, for your email. And if you have further questions, you may want to check with uh, a Catholic priest in your area, perhaps at a nearby Catholic church, uh, and then he could give you a little bit more information that would uh, help you all out uh, on your your own particular journey. In just a moment, we're going to go to the phones, and our phone number is 833-288-EWTN. Our uh, screener, Matt is uh, screening a call right now, but we've got some lines open for you at 833-288-EWTN if you have a question for Dr. David Anders. 833-288-3986. It is called to communion on this Tuesday afternoon here on EWTN. Do stay with us. It's called communion with Dr. David Andrews on this Tuesday afternoon here on EWTN. Our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. The calls are coming in right now, 833-288-3986. We do have a line open for you. Hey, there's a brand new book now available from EWTN Publishing. You know something can be old and new at the same time. It's a new book, Mother Angelica's Lessons on Genesis, by mother angelica the reason i say new and old is because this book is drawn from mother's popular tv series biblical spirituality through her personal accounts and down-to-earth reflections You'll enter into each passage and experience God's love and guidance like never before. Mother's Life Lessons will show you how to stop looking back in order to look ahead and how to enjoy the promises of God. You'll see the importance of consulting the Lord in all things and the power of your prayers in helping convert sinners even at the last moment of their lives. A lot of very important things in this book. I think it's, uh, it's timeless, as is everything that I've ever heard from Mother Angelica. Even though she may have said it 25, 30 years ago or longer, it's still up to date. Check out this great book, Mother Angelica's Lessons on Genesis, might make a great Christmas gift or a stocking stuffer for someone you know. It's available right now at EWTNRC.com. Buy Catholic, shop Catholic, EWTNRC.com. All right, if you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. Beginning here with Phil, a first-time caller from Pittsburgh, listening on his Alexa device. Hey there, Phil, what's on your mind today?
1: Hey uh, good uh, good afternoon gentlemen um i uh, wanted to know, uh, you, know I've, you know about the catholic position on tithing um you know it seems like in the evangelical tradition that there's a uh, ma- uh, mandate to tithe and that god will you know bless you if you um, if you do tithe and to some in now that's a you know like a you know, word blessing is a you know kind of I guess it depends on the preacher who's um, saying that what kind of blessing that will be. Sure, but uh, okay. uh, I just wanted to see what they, you know, since Doctor Andrews has a uh, you know, both both a background in um, Protestantism and, uh, and and as a fa- as a faithful Catholic now uh, what his position was would, um, would be on that.
3: Sure, yeah, I really appreciate the question. So you'll you'll note that. In the epistles of the New Testament, there is not a single passage that exhorts the Christian church to tithing as, a, as an intrinsic part of Christian worship or Christian identity. Instead, what we find are admonitions to care for the poor, and at least in the apostolic age, those admonitions were in the context of an apostolic mission to Jerusalem in particular. And so Paul, when he was traveling around through the various churches, would take up collections for the poor in Jerusalem, and uh, he understood that eschatologically as part of the fulfillment that um in the messianic age in the kingdom of god that the nations would bring tribute to Jerusalem and and he facilitated that but it wasn't through the medium of conquest which is the way many people had expected they thought maybe the davidic empire would be renewed and and israel would go out conquering and foreign kings would be led in train marching through the streets of Jerusalem with camels laden with gold and that sort of thing, and, and they would all flow into the temple treasury and the royal treasury, and Jerusalem would become rich and powerful. That's not the way Paul saw it at all. He he saw this as a ministry of the wealthy to the poor, uh, not the other way around, and uh, of solicitude for the marginalized, which is the Christ taught, right? Jesus made a big part of his ministry, caring for the marginalized and the poor and the outcast and, mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. So caring, making a collection for the poor of Jerusalem and then caring for the material needs of one another were mandatory parts of Christian identity. Uh, but again, it's pretty clear from the Pauline Epistles that this was to be done freely and without compulsion. And so it wasn't because it was enjoined by uh, the Mosaic Law with some kind of strict mathematical proportion, but the but the measure was to be the measure of charity. And and Paul, you know, would talk about, I'm going to come by in the first day of the week, I want you to take a collection, but everyone give freely and not under compulsion because the Lord loves a cheerful giver. Right? Uh, we know in the book of Acts, uh, in the book of Acts, they didn't have cell phones that rang during, tele- during uh, <laughs> radio shows. Excuse me there for that guys. Um, we know that in the book of Acts, the the, the celebrated case of Ananias and Sapphira, <coughs> where um, the early Christians, they weren't tithing. Many of them were were divesting themselves of all of their material wealth and bringing it, laying it at the feet of the apostles who were distributing it among among the poor of the Christian community. Here come Ananias and Sapphira, and, uh, and they they sell a field, and they bring a portion of the proceeds, and they lay it at the feet of the apostles. The apostles say, um, is this all the money you got for the field? And they lie and Uh-oh. say yes, because they're giving money to be seen by men. <clears throat> and then God strikes them dead. Now, he didn't strike them dead because they gave half of the money, as opposed to all of it. He struck them dead because they were lying, because of their duplicity. <clears throat> And wanting to be seen by men. Uh, the point was that they were under no compulsion. They could, they could do it freely, but it needed to be done out of charity. And so this is the disposition that the Church has maintained for 2,000 years, that um, giving of one's material uh, uh, welfare, of one's material wealth, is an intrinsic part of Christian discipleship. It's, it's, as, it's as integral to Christian discipleship as the act of faith, um, as the sacramental life, the ministry of charity is absolutely integral to Christian identity and to the Catholic Church. However, it is it is the principle of charity, not under compulsion and not according to some strict mathematical proportion. If anything, you might uh, consider the language of John the Baptist when he says, if you have two cloaks, give to him who has not. Well, if you wanted to go strict mathematical proportionality, that'd be 50%, 50, not 10 yeah, right? Exactly. Yeah. Um uh, and, of course, Jesus commends the the, the widow who, who gives two mites, which are the, all of the money she has in the world to live on, in comparison to those who gave larger amounts, but it was mm. a smaller proportion of their income. So, again, the measurement is not some sort of strict mathematical proportionality. And it's very clear from St. Paul's epistles and from the Council of Jerusalem that Christians are not bound by the precepts of the Mosaic Law, any of the precepts of the Mosaic Law, as a legal code, right? That's not That's not how you construe Christian life. Um, and so there's no mandate from the New Testament for Christians to tithe 10% of their income. Now, it's also interesting, if you look at the Old Testament tithe in context, it doesn't say anything about 10% of one's income. What the law actually says is 10% of agricultural produce. Mm. And so the way that modern Protestants construe the tithe seems to me to be a very tendentious and ordered to the flourishing of uh, of Protestant and evangelical ministries not obedience to Scripture, right? And it's a very effective tool. It is if you get, you know, a a, a congregation of a thousand professionals, tending ten percent of their income, you've got a pretty hefty budget right off the bat. I mean, yeah. it works. You know, you can you can manipulate them that way and create a lot of money really fast. Um, but they're not obedient either to the Old Testament or to the New, in my judgment, in doing that. So what we have in the Catholic Church is something different. We have what's called a precept of the Church. And that is a mandate, it is a legal requirement that Catholic faithful contribute to the material needs of the church. Period. Period. And, um, you know, I can remember uh, times in my Catholic life when uh, times were tough. And I remember going to confession and saying, Yeah, I don't, I don't, I mean, I'm kind of low on cash here, Father. And priests would be like, Well, take it easy then. Wait till you've got, wait till you can take care of your family first and then you give something to the church. Uh, At the same time, you know we have we have catholic benefactors that give enormous sums of wealth to the church and to the poor and to catholic causes and give uh, and give generously and give uh, uh sacrificially right and again the measure is the ma- measure of charity as the lord leads you and not some strict mathematical proportionality
2: is that helpful for you phil
1: uh yes it is so basically it's like you know give from the heart as your means allow and not uh you know according to some proportional you know, pur- pur- proportional th- you know uh.
3: sure you're not obligated to give 10% of your pre-tax income or anything like that and I would add that the the claims that that many Protestant preachers will make that you know if you do this then um, then God is going to open the floodgates and dump buckets of wealth mm. on you is um, um well maybe God will and maybe God won't <laughs> you know I mean that that's that's manipulative and, and, and exploitive and there's nothing in scripture that suggests that that we will reap proportionate material benefits for money that we place in the in the offering plate.
2: Known as the health and wealth. Uh, precisely. Yeah, there you go. Phil, thanks so much for your call. That opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, 833-288-3986. Call to communion on this rather chilly uh, Tuesday afternoon here on EWTN Radio. Let's go to uh, Doylestown, PA. Just outside of Philadelphia, here is uh, Janet, and Janet is listening to us on Sirius XM Channel 130. Hey there, Janet, what's on your mind today?
4: Hi, I have a question. My husband and I were discussing it. We just had the Immaculate Conception of our Blessed Mother on Holy Day. Mm -hmm. But I have a question. If Mary was conceived immaculately, does that mean that St. Anne did not have physical relations with her husband, to conceive Mary, I'm confused. Can you help yeah, me? Yeah,
3: thank you. I appreciate the question. So the, the virginal conception of Christ um, is in is in no way intrinsically related to the question of whether or not Christ or any other person would inherit original sin or or grace. In other words, God could have in his almighty power if he had chosen He could have allowed the human nature that was assumed by the second person of the Trinity, i.e., the person of Jesus. Jesus could have been conceived in the natural way. Mary and Joseph could have had natural relations and born a child, and that child could have, that nature could have still been assumed by the second person. He could still have a divine man, you know, the Messiah, even though he'd had two biological parents in the normal way. So the, the virginal birth is not necessary. To preserve from the stain of original sin, that's it's unconnected to that question intrinsically. The reason Mary conceived Christ virginally was not because it was necessary to preserve him somehow from the stain of sin, uh, but but to but to underscore the fact that God was his father, not in a biological way, but in that eternal way, that eternal relationship of father and son. And so, when Catholics reflect on the sonship of Christ, there's no mistaking the fact that this is a spiritual sonship that proceeds eternally from the Father. So the virgin birth is really kind of signals Christ's unique relationship to the Father. It really is something other than the question of sin or not sin or sanctifying grace. Um, when it comes to the question of the Blessed Virgin Mary, again, it's not necessary for Mary to have been conceived of a virgin in order for God to preserve her from original sin. These are two different doctrines, two different ideas. Preservation from original sin, in Mary's case, means that God gave her an infusion of grace at the moment of her conception. That's all it means. It, okay. w- w- at the moment she was conceived, God infused the 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 zygote Mary with with uh, a plenitude of grace that would preserve her from original and actual sin. But doesn't matter that she was conceived in the normal way. She was conceived in the normal way. Um, but that has nothing to do with, you know, this this other issue of grace. That's something that was that was gratuitous on God's part. He just infused her with grace at her conception, preserved her from original sin not necessary for her to have been born of origin for that to take place.
2: Janet, thanks so much for your call. Call to Communion here on EWTN. Joseph, listening in Las Vegas, on YouTube today. Hey, well, hello, Joseph. What's on your mind today, sir?
0: Well, good good afternoon, good morning to me, Dr. Anders, and Tom. I just I want to thank you guys for your work. And uh, uh, so, hi, Dr. Anders. So, my, my question um, happens to uh, revolve around devotions in the Church, so I, I've been really having a tough time lately. You know, I'm really, I don't want to say questioning the Catholic faith, but I'm really questioning the legitimacy of the people. Um, this is not to do, I'm not talking about the Pope, I'm not talking about any Cardinal, I'm just uh, seeing the people in there, you know, it was a bit of a controversy regarding the Rosary and regarding devotion. I had made a statement on Sunday when somebody asked me, they're like, you know, I prayed all these devotions, I said, you know, I, I really don't like to focus on devotions, and the Rosary is not really my thing. I believe that, you know, going to Mass and going to Confession is very important, but also really understanding your Scripture and understanding your Bible, and I I, I put more of an emphasis on that, and I was viciously attacked by a lot of people. You know, they're telling me, you know, you're a bad Catholic, no, you need to do this, you need to do that devotion, and I'm like, you know, you're sitting telling me about this, but during the Gospel, during Mass, or during, we say, Divine Liturgy, you're not even paying attention. You're sitting and praying the rosary while the priest is reading the gospel or reading the epistle. And it kind of makes me wonder, you know, you know, the, the Bible's not the rule of faith, but if we really want to understand what Jesus did and said, you have to know your
3: Scripture, because a lot of Catholics... So Joseph, I'm not hearing a question here. Is there a question I can help you with?
0: Yeah, so could you live a Catholic life without having the rosary or any devotions That's kind of my, the basis of my question.
3: All right, I'm going to do you one better than that, Joseph. One, of course you could live the, a Catholic life, of, of, of a virtuous, vigorous, successful Catholic life, without praying the rosary or praying any particular devotion. Of course you could. Um, you could also live a vigorous Catholic life, a charitable life, a life united to God in charity, uh, filled with the Holy Spirit, knowing nothing of the Bible and only knowing the rosary. Either one would work for you. Yeah. Okay? Um, And in history, if you look at it, you know, 2,000 years, many, many, many lay Catholics who came to sanctity have done so without explicit knowledge of the Bible. And many, many, many lay Catholics have come to sanctity without ever having prayed the rosary. Hmm. There are many modalities in the Catholic life for growing in charity, imitating Christ, Uh, and being taken up into the contemplation of God. There are many modalities. And any one of them can be taken superstitiously. So I grew up in a tradition, not Catholic tradition, where there were basically no devotions. Well, I won't say there were no devotions. There were no devotions of the Catholic type. We had our devotions, but they had a very different character to them. Um, But there was a huge emphasis on reading and studying the Bible. And I knew many people that knew the Bible backwards and forwards, and did not do what it said. Wow. Right? And so the Bible is not a panacea. It's not a cure-all for the problem of, of uh, superstitious spirituality, uh, nor is the rosary, right? The, the appropriate thing is, what is the disposition with which you take to these various modalities? If you do it in a spirit of charity and openness and sincerity, trying to grow in the love of God and virtue, then it's a path of sanctification and redemption for you. Otherwise, not.
2: Thanks for your call, Joseph. It's called a Communion here on EWTN. It's called Communion here on EWTN. Our phone number, and we do have a couple of lines open for you, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Call now. Grab one of those open lines. Hey, congratulations going out to, and believe me, I was going to say, a longtime member. This is the longest-time member of the EWTN radio family. Modern Day Radio in Portland and other great cities throughout Oregon. They win the Longevity Award. They are celebrating an amazing 34 years of Catholic radio and 27 years with EWTN Radio. So, congratulations to Patrick Ryan, everybody there at Modern Day Radio, from your friends here at EWTN Radio. All right, back to the phones now at 833. 288-EWTN. Here is John in uh, Brown City, Michigan, listening on Sirius XM, channel 130. Hey, uh, John, what's on your mind today, sir?
1: Well, we do the rosary at church in a group of us. So after church, we go to breakfast, a couple of us, and we got talking, and he hit me with a question I couldn't answer. Well, first I wanted to, but then I went, oh, I'm not really sure. So when we say the rosary or any prayers to Mary if we say them in our mind does she hear them All right. because I know Satan doesn't hear. Yeah,
3: them. I appreciate the question John. So here's my question to you. If we say them out loud, does she hear them with ears? That's a good point. Right. Given that given that Mary is assumed into heaven and we don't really like in terms of the Space-time continuum. We can't really locate her anywhere, right? But clearly, she's not sitting next to us in the pew. Not, not in body. Yeah. So, however, our prayers are made known to her, it's probably not through the medium of vibrations in the airwaves. However, we articulate them. Right. That's, that's most likely not the way. That, I mean, I don't think there's a microphone hidden under my pew. You know, that <laughs> pipes up to heaven. You know, I don't think it works that way. So we don't even know that the saints have direct conscious knowledge of our prayers. What we know for sure is that our prayers to them are not in vain. Our prayers to them are effective, and that the saints, in fact, pray for us. But there's more than one way that that could be the case. So consider this possibility. What if the saints in heaven, including the Blessed Virgin, pray something like this? Dear God, please hear the prayers of all those who seek my intercession. So a, a kind of a general prayer that through my intercession, through the saints' intercession, that these prayers would be effective. Well, that would get the job done. I mean, what the Church tells us is that they pray for us and that our prayers to them are efficacious, that they're not in vain. That doesn't actually specify in the doctrine of the Church that they have conscious knowledge of every individual prayer that we pray. Now, on the other hand, maybe they do. Maybe it works like this. Maybe God in his almighty power miraculously makes it happen that a glorified intellect of the saint in heaven can have direct, immediate knowledge of every petition placed to them. That, he's, that's certainly within the power of God to do that. That could be the way it works. In which case, the medium of, uh, of exchange, if you would, will be, would be the Holy Spirit, not, mm. not vibrations in the airwaves. Yeah. One way or the other, whether they have conscious, direct knowledge of our prayers or not, um, we should pray to them. And our prayers to them work, they're effective, they're not in vain. And however it works, it happens through the medium of God's Holy Spirit rather than through uh, the vibrations of airwaves. So praying in your heart quietly to the Blessed Virgin Mary is a perfectly acceptable way to pray to the Blessed Virgin. Now, the reason that we pray out loud is not because God or the saints need to hear us audibly, but because there is a psychological benefit to humans articulating their thoughts to, vo- to vocalizing them, it kind of concretizes them and makes us specify, and it, and it, it brings our bodies into the act, and that, that elicits our affections and our intentions in a particularly powerful way because of our neurobiology, right? mm, the way we're put yeah. together as human beings. So there's a benefit in praying out loud. There's also a benefit in praying silently.
2: John, thanks so much for your call. Here is George now, listening uh, in New Jersey on Sirius XM, Channel 130. Hey there, George. What's on your mind today, sir?
1: Yes, hi. Uh, Thank you, Dr. Anders, for taking my call. I am a Palestinian-American, originally from Bethlehem, the Holy Land. And my question comes to the statehood of Israel with all these issues that's going on. And my question is, really, what's the stand of the Church teachings comparing to the Protestant Church? And the reason I'm saying that, and I don't want the answer to be political, but more religious and historical, because a lot of my friends are Protestant and they're totally in full support of Israel, regardless of what's happening. And I understand they believe in the return of the Jews and the conversion, but I know the Church, the Catholic Church, has a little bit different views probably on that.
3: So if you can just kind yeah, of enlighten me on you. that, that will be great. I really appreciate the question. So you're correct that not all, but many Protestants have uh, a an overly literalistic, biblicist uh, hermeneutic where they take Old Testament prophecy about the... Um, uh, the future kingdom of God and and its its relationship to the national borders of the Davidic empire in ancient Israel. They take that language uh, very literally and and naively, su- in my judgment, naively, such that not only do they think that the modern nation state of Israel has some sort of divine right to the land, um, but they give tend to give the 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 political class in the modern state of Israel, a kind of carte blanche, that almost as if they can do no wrong. And any any kind of political or military action on the part of the uh, Israeli government is is de facto justified in the minds of evangelical Protestants because it's in defense of a divine right, and so they just have this absolute right to do whatever they want to. That's definitely not the Catholic Church's position at all. Um, so the Church does not have the same understanding of the Bible, doesn't have the same hermeneutic, and so there's nothing from our view, from the Catholic point of view, about the Bible that suggests that the modern state of Israel founded in 1948 has any kind of uh, divine right claim on the on the Holy Land, on the geography as such, right? So we have no position uh, affirming that. Um, uh, you know, for for reasons of, you know, diplomacy and demography, the Church recognizes that the State of Israel is, in fact, a legitimate state. I mean, it has a right to exist um, and has a right to defend its borders and its security interests, but it's it's derived from, you know, the right of all peoples to protect themselves and to, and to attend to their own destiny, not from some kind of divine right to the land as such. Um, when it comes to the present conflict, again, the Church does not have this um, this uh, knee-jerk de facto support for anything the political class in Israel would do. And any kind of military interventions that Israel would undertake would would be subject to the same kind of critical scrutiny that any other nation would be subject to in engaging in, in warfare. And so some of the reasons that—some of the qualifications of a just war um, would be, number one, that—okay, uh, so if you if you conceive— of Hamas as the aggressor nation, right, in this interchange. I'm just take that, you know, for the sake of argument. Um, the damage inflicted by the aggressor nation, that'd be Hamas, on Israel uh, has to be understood to be lasting, grave, and certain, all right? Um, all other means of putting an end to the conflict have to be shown to be impractical or ineffective. Um, uh, Israel would have to have serious prospects of success, and their success in their military operations should not produce evils or disorders orders graver than the evil that they sought to eliminate. So those are the basic conditions for qualifying a just war. Now here's what I'm not about to do. I'm not going to evaluate on this show whether Israel's military action meets those standards or not, all right? And to the best of my knowledge, I'm not sure that the Holy See has issued an opinion on that one way or the other. But I will tell you that the uh, Israel does not have carte blanche to do whatever they want, any more than Hamas has carte blanche to do whatever they want, and any military action that they have has to be evaluated by the by the criterion of just war that would apply in any other kind of military conflict. Is that helpful? Yes,
1: thank you very much. Absolutely.
2: Thank you, George. We would appreciate your call from New Jersey, uh, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130 today. It's called a Communion here on EWTN. Hey, last call for your call at eight three three. 288-EWTN. Call coming in right now. 833-288-3986. Uh, let's see here. Uh, Stephen is watching us on YouTube this afternoon. Stephen says, Dr. Anders, could you explain the Catholic view of salvation versus the Protestant view? It seems like Protestants think, that Catholics think, they, that we can work our way to heaven by tallying up works. All right, did you get that? That Protestants seem to think that Catholics think we can work our way to heaven. Yes, yes. That so way.
3: Here, here's what he's suggesting: that the, the Protestant caricature of the Catholic position, yes, is that God is a kind of uh, celestial accountant with his green eye shade, and that he is tallying up good works and bad works. And provided the the balance sheet weighs more heavily to the good works than the bad, then we have some net equity in our account, and and that gets us into heaven. That's the way some Protestants understand the Catholic position. That is not the Catholic position. It is not the Catholic position. On, on the other hand, Catholics deny the Protestant doctrine that we're saved by faith alone. right? Because this is how the Protestant doctrine works. The Protestant view is that there's nothing we could ever do to contribute to our salvation. Uh, in, in any way at all. And in fact, that our, that our most righteous deeds are regarded by God as filthy rags. We take hmm. that quote from the, past, from the book of Isaiah. And so even Mother Teresa, when she's helping the lepers and the poor and the dying, and, and these extraordinary acts of charity and self-sacrifice, from the, stand, from the classical Protestant view, even Mother Teresa's best actions are hateful to God. Jonathan Edwards once said that you, are, you speaking to the Puritans, mm-hmm. are more loathsome to God than the most despicable ser- serpent is in your own eyes. Right? That God really has a very bad opinion of you, and there's nothing you could do to please him. And so from the Protestant point of view, the solution to that problem is that Christ comes and lives a life of perfect obedience and yet uh, is punished by God by his death on the cross so that God punishes Jesus as if he were a sinner, even though he's not, and then imputes or credits Christ's righteousness to us and that through faith, the believer is accepted by God because God regards the sinful believer as if he had been the righteousness of Jesus. And so he remains objectively sinful, but is regarded by God as if he were righteous, and that this takes place through the medium of Christ's righteous life and death. All right, that's the Protestant position. Catholics believe something totally different. They don't believe the caricature, but they don't believe that either. The Catholic position is that through faith in Christ and the sacraments, the sacraments are kind of a, a, a visible expression of the life of faith, that we're transformed, we're changed, that our character is... Is, uh, is altered, and that through the almighty power of God, through grace and the Holy Spirit, the Christian can regain what was lost in Adam, namely the likeness and image of God. That we can be reformed after Christ's likeness and image and come to share the intimacy that the Son has with the Father. That the love of God is poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And that the, the, the person whose, whose, whose interior impulse is love will naturally fulfill the righteous requirements of the law without having to attend to the, the nitpicky details of things like circumcision and the Sabbath days and laws of cash root and dietary regulations and all these things that, that distinguish Jew from Gentile, he doesn't have to worry so much about legal codes because his character has been transformed. And if you know, like if you're a grammar school teacher mm. and you have a classroom, there is some perfect little princess of a cute little eight-year-old girl <laughs> who you never have to tell, you know, stay in your seat, don't cause trouble— uh you know, pay attention in class and don 't be mean to your neighbors because like that 's her disposition sure right you don't she she would be like that with no rule, but then there's Johnny over here, right Johnny needs a a thicket full of rules to keep him <laughs> in his seat right yeah. because he 's an unruly wild man hmm. okay that 's the Catholic position like if if your character has been changed you don 't need a bunch of rules because you 're motivated by charity sure and and love fulfills the law right. Through Christ, that's what happens to us. Our character is transformed. And so union with God, which is to say salvation, is nothing other than coming to share more and more in that intimacy with the Father that is Christ's very interior life. Uh, and grace is the seed of eternal life begun within us. So you, you, the transformation begins in this life, and as long as you cooperate with it, it continues on into the next life. And, and uh, like Gregory of Nyssa said, it's it's further up and further in. It's this, it's this continual growth in... In, uh, in sort of this, uh, this sort of uh, asymptotic approach to the divine nature where we get holier and holier and closer and closer and more and more filled with love in this, in this uh, infinite explosion of, uh, of beatific joy that tends to the horizon of eternity.
2: Stephen, great question. Thanks so much uh, for it here on EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. We're going to get to Mary in Pennsylvania in just a moment. You know, uh, some of us get up quite early in the morning. You may be one of those early bird uh, morning morning persons uh, who, uh, you know, really enjoys getting up early. I think it's fantastic. Well, if you are up early, you may want to join us for Father Knows Best. Fathers Know Best Fantastic program, 4 a.m. Eastern, Monday through Friday here on EWTN Radio. And uh, tomorrow morning, it's going to be Father Benedict Groeschel of Happy Memory, reflecting on St. Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians, talking about living in hope, and if you have hope, death is the beginning. What a great show. Fathers Know Best. Uh, Check it out tomorrow morning, early on, at uh, 4 a.m. Eastern, right here on EWTN Radio. All right, let's get to uh, Mary in Pennsylvania, listening on Sirius XM, Channel 130. Uh, Blessed Advent to you, Mary. What's on your mind today?
4: Thank you, and thank you for taking my call. So um, I'm a greeter at our church, and recently a gentleman um, that I know to see Um, who comes every Sunday, had um, asked me a question, and I noticed he had this book with him, and I said, oh, what's that book you have there? And it was a Jehovah Bible. And, um, you know, I offered to show him how to use the Breaking Bread book for Mass. Um, I've offered to to, um, assist him in getting uh, a Catholic Bible, And I had invited him to our Bible study, so um, he accepted. You know all of that I offered him, but he still continues to uh, come to church with this Jehovah Bible. He carries it every Sunday and with him. So the other day I was, um, he had a question. I returned his call about the Trinity. And, you know, and I guess it's maybe from some confusion from hearing what he's hearing from the Jehovah's. So apparently he has been—somebody's been picking him up from that group, and he's been going to—I uh, don't know if you would call it their services or meetings. And, um, but he says, you know, that he's, he's definitely Catholic, and he's going to continue being Catholic, but that they're being nice to him. And, um, but I just, you know, I just find that I feel like I need to say something to this man, because I feel like he's getting led down the wrong path, and not only that, he keeps carrying this Jehovah Bible into church with him, which I'm not quite understanding or what I should say
3: uh, yeah. yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So... This is. I'm gonna give you my judgment, right? It's not infallible, obviously, and you can take it with a grain of salt. Um, I think that what you have already done is fantastic. You've you've definitely reached out to him. You've you've tried to help him. You've expressed your interest. You've answered his questions. That's fantastic. And, and I mean, as a greeter, your primary job is to the be, be the being nice person, right? Yeah. And you've done that. Um, the you, you put your finger on a major issue, which is that though he identifies as Catholic. He is going to the Kingdom Hall and attending meetings of the Jehovah's Witnesses because they have greeted him uh, kindly and they've reached out to him and they've love bombed him. That is how uh, many sectarian religious groups flourish, right? Their their doctrines may be very outside the mainstream, but uh, but they they circle around newcomers and make them feel tremendously welcome. And the sociology on this is very clear: that if you can if you can dominate a person's social life, they will come to believe what you believe more often than not. There's kind of a straight-line correlation between your social embeddedness in a community and the, uh, and the extent to which you believe their doctrines. So I, I think that the the most important thing that you could do for this fellow is not the direct approach of, of uh, uh, addressing the translation of the Bible that he carries with him, um, which may put him on his guard to make him defensive, Mm-hmm. But um, but see if you can outdo the JWs for charity. Mm. So what is the venue uh, in which you could in, to which you could invite him, where he would feel the kind of love and connectedness that he's obviously craving in the JWs, but he's not getting his current Catholic environment. Um, now uh, there is somebody in the church who I think would be better placed to make some comments about say Bible translation and Trinitarian doctrine. That'd be the priest. And so you might think about having a a a conversation with the pastor or the parochial vicar and say, look, you know, I know there's a JW who's coming, or at least a, a Catholic who's who's wavering, who comes regularly to Mass and he's bringing a New World Translation of the Bible. Um, do you think you, know, you might, might be advisable to make some observations from the pulpit about the doctrine of the Trinity and um, history of the tradition, and, and our understanding of Bible translations, and how New Testament Greek actually confirms the Trinitarian doctrine, and, and, and not this, uh, this novel position here. Um, the, the Apostolate Catholic Answers, which is a partner of EWTN, has a lot of good tracts and treatises on different sectarian movements. They have great materials on the JWs, including their understanding of the Trinity, um, and, uh, you know, making some of those available to the pastoral staff. Uh, to the religious educators, to the formators, and then maybe sort of judiciously placing them around in in uh, in in, um, uh, in conspicuous places in the in the vestibule of the church uh, might uh, also yeah. not be a bad idea. But I think if you if you go to him with a kind of direct assault, um, the the risk is that you you create defensiveness, and he may be bringing that that Kingdom Hall translation, that New World translation, because he wants to compare the two religious systems. And, uh, and, look, they's, he's, he's perfectly within his rights to do that. You know, I mean, when I was investigating Catholicism, you better believe that I tested it against my previous Calvinism. And, and the act of faith has to be free and uncoerced and, and proceed from a clear conscience. And so he, he's going to need to have the opportunity to work through uh, the theological questions. We can give him resources, but it has to be his research, his decision, his motivated decision to make the act of faith. So you can help him. Uh, but if you, if you kind of come at him with a frontal assault— Mm-hmm. Um, my fear is that he'll recoil and get defensive. So I think there's a lot of things you can do. Number one, be friendly. Invite him to social functions. Um, maybe have a talk with the pastor. Maybe get some of those Catholic Answers materials mm-hmm. and scatter yeah. them around.
2: Yeah, we all have to lead with love, don't Always. we? Always. I'm thinking here real real quickly of uh, someone who is now a multimillionaire, but back in the day he was really in a world of hurt, had, you know, just in, in, in many... Uh, I mean, he was absolutely broke and a a fallen away Catholic. And the one person that reached out to him was a Mormon. The one person. Ah. And that fellow is today a Mormon just because of that, that time. We all have to lead with love. We're going to get to another call in here in a second, but first this question from Andrea watching on YouTube. She says, I went to RCIA, went through the whole program five years ago, but did not join the church that Easter. Do I have to go through all of RCIA again to join the
3: Catholic Church? That will really be up to the pastor of the parish. Okay. Right. And, uh, I mean, you you could— uh, contact the parish where you went through RCA and say, you know, I've I've been sitting on this for five years, and I'm finally ready to join. Mm-hmm. You know, can I come into the church? There are many churches where they don't make you wait till Easter. You know, if you've already been educated in the faith, you can just go make a profession of faith. At my parish, actually, this past month, we had a couple people come into the church, you know, who just they studied. They were already baptized people. They were not catechumens. They were candidates. They were received in the church, and Confirmed and went to Holy Communion, you're good to go. Other pastors may uh, have a different view, so it's really going to be up sure. to the pastor of the parish. And there's no necessity that you stick to one. I mean, like if you, at first, you don't succeed, try, try again. So if yeah. you go to a parish and you don't like the answer, here you go, try the next parish, and they might let you come in right away.
2: Andrea, thanks for watching us on YouTube today. Dan Gask, Dan is uh, also watching on YouTube. He says, I recently heard two Catholics arguing about. Is it acceptable to wear a rosary as jewelry, or if it should be carried in the pocket, not publicly displayed? What say you, Dr. Anders?
3: Um, yeah, so I don't really have a dog in this fight, to be honest with you. Mm. And, and um, I don't know that there is a law in the Church on this. Maybe there is, but I've, I'm not familiar with one. I, uh-huh. What I have heard are a lot of opinionated Catholics, right, on this issue. And I have definitely heard the position that you shouldn't wear rosaries as jewelry. I, I know that position commonly. Um, I I think there are some people who wear a rosary because they intend to use it as a devotional item, right? Uh Um, And then there may be others for whom it is merely a fashion statement, which does strike me as somewhat disrespectful. You know, if you don't intend to honor the Blessed Virgin, then it seems kind of exploitive to carry her image or that image of Christ um, just as a fashion statement.
2: Colleen is listening to us in Victor, New York, on the Station of the Cross. Colleen, we have about a minute left. What's your question today?
5: Um, hello. So I've been to confession twice in the last month. The first priest I went to, I didn't know, and when I walked in, he said, make it quick. So that kind of null and voided my confession right there, because I didn't feel free to spend any time talking. Then last week, I went to confession again to a different priest, and I, I, the sins that I had were not, like, I was gossiping about somebody, and that's what I confessed. So the priest was very milk toast and was making excuses for me and saying, well, you know, sometimes we just do that out of frustration, don't worry about it. But that's what brought me into confession, because it, it did bother me that I did that. Mm-hmm. And then at the end, he looked at me and smiled and said, are you sorry for your sins? And I said, yes. And he said, okay, um, well, say a Hail Mary and go and enjoy your day. And I've never been in a position where I didn't receive absolution.
3: Colleen, and, I'm, I'm but... out of time. Here comes the music. In my judgment, you should seriously consider changing parishes. Mm. I mean, if you if both priests in this parish are, are either refusing you absolution um, or seem impatient with the confessional, then that's, that's not a good parish to go to. I mean, I know uh, uh, parishes in my diocese where they're very serious about confession. Yeah. The Priests are, are, are eager to hear confession. And they have long lines. And growing membership. Yep. And there are parishes that are not like that, and they have short lines and shrinking membership. There you go. And, and I, I would go to a parish where the priests are serious about the use of the sacraments, and they take seriously your confession.
2: Colleen, thanks for your call. Couldn't get to Frank in San Francisco. Frank, please call us back tomorrow hopefully we can get you on a little bit earlier. Dr. David Anders, thank you. Thank you, Tom. On behalf of our fantastic team here, I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. We'll see you tomorrow right here on EWTN's Call to Communion. Have a great day and God bless.